old pilot's plane tales, the aviators of Pittsburgh. 1911 saw a young adventurer from Pittsburgh challenge the new world of aviation. Calbraith Perry Rogers Jr. was born on January the 12th, 1879, to a family with a long history of prestigious U.S. Navy service. But a childhood battle with scarlet fever left him partially deaf and ineligible for military service. Refusing to let his deafness inhibit his desire for adventure, Rogers was a romantic model of a daredevil at the time, six foot four inches tall and with an ever-present cigar wedged in his mouth. He was a football star, yachtsman and auto racer. At the age of 33, he found his calling. Rogers had visited the Wright Flying School operated by the famous aviation pioneers and brothers Orville and Wilbur Wright. There he saw an airplane for the first time and became fascinated with the idea of flying. Just one week after Rogers began taking classes at the school, he requested permission to take a solo flight, but he was denied due to lack of training, so predictably he responded by purchasing his own training plane. And on June the 12th, 1911, he made his first solo flight. After practicing with his plane for just over a month, Rogers passed the Federation Aeronautique Internationale's flying examination on August the 7th, becoming only the 49th licensed aviator in the world. Less than a week later, whilst participating in the Chicago Air Show, a promoter asked Rogers if he would be interested in competing for a prize that the publisher, William Randolph Hearst, had recently offered. $50,000 was to be given to the first person who flew from coast to coast across America in fewer than 30 days. Rogers, unsurprisingly, accepted the challenge. He purchased a lightweight four-cylinder, 35-horsepower Model EX biplane from the Wright Company, the first ever sold to a private buyer. Rogers told Orville Wright of his plan to compete for the Hearst Prize, but Wright, doubting any modern plane's ability to travel so far, questioned Rogers' decision. An adventurer and risk-taker, though, he paid no attention. He secured sponsorship for his adventure from the Armour Meatpacking Company, which was promoting its new grape soda, Vin Fizz, the namesake of Rogers Plane. He had already won the $11,000 World Grand Endurance Aviation Contest in Chicago, staying in the air for 27 hours at intervals over a period of nine days. So, convinced in his own ability, he set off. Just three months after learning how to fly, Rogers took off from Sheepshead Bay in Long Island, New York, on September the 17th, 1911 poised to reach the Pacific Ocean in 30 days. A support train, arranged by his sponsors, followed his flight, carrying all the parts, tools and mechanics necessary for repairs and maintenance. The Vin Fizz crashed on its second takeoff and suffered extensive damage. 
More incidents, including two engine explosions, more than 15 crashes, and as many as 70 rough landings significantly delayed Rogers. Each time, crew members carefully and expertly rebuilt the plane, and Rogers headed westward with the sun in his eyes. He weathered electrical storms in Oklahoma and reached Kansas City on October the 14th. His sponsors then directed him to take his route to the more populous southwest, so he turned towards Texas, arriving on October the 17th, 1911. It would eventually take two weeks and 29 stops to get across Texas. In addition to his maintenance problems, Rogers lacked navigation tools. He didn't even have a compass, and as a result, he got off track on multiple occasions. It was clear he would not be able to complete the journey in 30 days, but he was determined to finish the trip anyway. As news spread, he became incredibly popular with the American public, as evidenced by the crowd of 20,000 waiting for him in Pasadena, California, when he landed there on November 5, 1911. Finally, on December the 10th, he landed in Long Beach and taxied his plane up to the Pacific Ocean, completing the world's first transcontinental flight. The cross-country trip took 49 days to complete, missing the prize deadline by 19 days. While the feat made Rogers an instant national celebrity, his success was sadly short-lived. He was killed in a plane crash after flying into a flock of birds just a few months later at an air show in California. Following his death, Rogers was interred in the Allegheny Cemetery in Pittsburgh. The Vin Fears itself was later given to the Smithsonian Institution by Calbraith's widow, Mabel Rogers. If Rogers was one of Pittsburgh's first aviating sons, then Helen Ritchie was certainly their first aviating daughter. Born in McKeesport near Pittsburgh on November the 21st, 1909, she was a self-proclaimed tomboy who ran away from home at the age of 12 and joined a circus. Her authoritarian father promptly bought her home, but Ritchie preferred male clothing and wore her hair in a boyish bob long before it was stylish. She shunned dolls, preferring to play with mechanical toys. After graduating high school, Helen enrolled in the Pittsburgh Carnegie Tech for a career in education, but she found it dull, and after a few months, she dropped out, still looking for the spark that would light that flame of interest. Ironically, her aviation interest began by accident. Richie lived near an airport, and one day she and a friend decided to take a ride to Cleveland just for fun. They flew to Cleveland, perched on some mail sacks inside a wacko biplane. When Ruth Nichols landed at Cleveland the same day, dressed in her white flying suit, Helen's eyes popped. When she saw the newspapermen, photographers and autograph seekers gathering around her, Richie suddenly knew what she wanted to do with her life. Standing only five foot four inches tall, those who saw her fly said she was a natural. Helen enrolled in a flight school, 
and was awarded her pilot's license on the 28th of June 1930. In celebration of her accomplishment, her father bought her an open cockpit biplane. However, a pilot's license was not enough. Helen was smart enough to realise that the future for pilots would be with commercial airlines, so she went on to earn her commercial pilot's license on December 4, 1930. Despite this, the thrill of stunt flying lured her away from the airline industry and Helen became an aerobatic pilot. Having no formal training in this type of flying, she relied on observation and her natural talent. By 1932, her flying skills had earned her nationwide notoriety, especially after she finished third in the Amelia Earhart Trophy race. Because of this popularity, Frances Marsalis, another prominent female aviator, contacted Ritchie, and in 1933, Ritchie was Marsalis's co-pilot when they set a new record for a 10-day endurance flight. To accomplish this feat, the women circled around the city of Miami, with two other pilots flying up to meet them over 83 times to provide fuel, food, water and repair materials. Without the modern advances that we enjoy now, refueling consisted of one of the two pilots climbing out of a hatch, catching the fuel nozzle as it descended from the other plane and shoving it into the fuel tank. Not only was this extremely dangerous, but it also presented a very high likelihood that they would get sprayed with gasoline. Helen gained acclaim when on the sixth day the nozzle came loose and catching on the wing tore the fabric. In order to ensure they could stay aloft long enough to set the record, Ritchie climbed out onto the wing with needle and thread and repaired the tear. Upon landing, officials declared that they had set a new record for a refueling endurance flight by staying aloft for 237 hours and 42 minutes and flying a total of 23,700 miles. In August 1934, she flew in the first women's national air meet. She finished sixth in the 20-mile race, but her eyes were set on the featured event, a 50-mile race. With only six miles to go, Helen Ritchie and Edna Gardner were fighting for the lead when Marsalis came up from behind and tried to overtake them. However, going around a turn, Marcellus's aircraft hit some turbulent slipstream, causing her wingtip to scrape the ground, catapulting the plane end over end until it came to rest in a field. Ritchie went on to win the race, but the news that Marsalis had died from her injuries whilst en route to hospital made it a bitter-sweet victory. Adding to that victory, Helen was awarded the prestigious Fairchild Trophy later that year. After only four years of flying, she was at the top of her game and proving herself to be one of the best pilots in the nation, but she had lost her taste for aerobatics. Helen accepted a job with Central Airlines and became the first woman to fly a commercial airliner on a regularly scheduled mail route in December 31st, 1934. Newspapers across the country cited Central Airlines as breaking new ground and Helen was leading the way for the dawn of women coming of age. 
What Helen had failed to realize was that Central Airlines was in stiff competition with Pennsylvania Airlines for the best mail routes. So Helen was viewed less as a pilot and more as a publicity goldmine. She spent more time signing autographs and handing out postcards than actually flying. The Civil Aeronautics Authority also recommended that she only fly in fair weather. Sadly, Helen also faced heavy discrimination from the male pilots and was refused admittance into their union. Fed up, she quit after only ten months and returned to flying privately and in competition. Despite the fact that America was not yet engaged in the war, it had become evident by the late 1930s that their involvement may become necessary. To that end, Ritchie attended an intensive pilot instructor's course and became the first woman not only to earn a pilot instructor's license, but also to be assigned to train military pilots. Her assignments took her to Philadelphia, Boston and Los Angeles. Completing that assignment, she returned to McKeesport, and after some formal aerobatics trailing, she began to teach airline pilots how to become instructors. Helen applied for the women's division of the British Air Transport Auxiliary, the ATA. She was immediately accepted, and after three weeks training in Canada, Helen sailed for England in March. She was assigned to the White Waltham Aerodrome near Maidenhead in Berkshire. She started her training and took her first flight on April the 11th in a Miles Magister. The ATA girls were charged with ferrying planes from the factories where they were built to RAF airfields all over Britain. By June, in addition to the Magister, she had flown Harvards, Oxfords, Masters, Hurricanes and Albacores. In July, she took up a Spitfire for the first time, but that flight ended in a crash landing. Determined not to let it get the best of her, she went back up in August and flew nothing but Spitfires for the rest of the month. The ATA girls were accustomed to flying many different types at a moment's notice, and as such they all carried ferry pilot's notes, which detailed how to fly each plane and any pertinent quirks or idiosyncrasies. Helen said that sometimes we would hurriedly skim through the pilot's operating manual to find out how to take off, then keep reading the book while in flight to find out how to land the damn thing. These missions were dangerous, not only because of their unfamiliarity with the aircraft, but also because there was always a risk of encountering the enemy. By September, Helen found herself in charge of the 20 American pilots in her unit. In 1943, Helen's mother fell ill and she returned home. However, after her mother's death, she was accepted into the Women's Air Force Service pilots. The mission of WASP was much the same as the ATA girls, so after a short amount of training in Texas, she was assigned to the 2nd Ferrying Group of the Air Transport Command in Wilmington, Delaware. Here she flew many different missions in a variety of aircraft. In 1944, she was transferred to Kansas City so that she could train on bombers and cargo planes before returning to Delaware. By the time that WASP disbanded in December 1944, Helen had flown 300 hours in 27 different types of aircraft. 
With the war over, Helen returned to McKeesport to her family. However, aviation jobs were scarce due to the influx of male pilots returning from the war. Despondent, she moved to New York, but having never fully recovered from the death of her friend Marsalis or the recent death of her mother, and believing that her flying career was over, she fell into a deep depression. She felt that there was no place for her to do the job that she loved so much. On January the 7th, 1947, Helen Ritchie took her own life. Her hometown of McKeesport named a park in her honour, but on March the 11th, 2010, her true worth was finally recognised and Helen Ritchie was posthumously awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. <laughs>